It may surprise you to learn that half of our DNA is shared with trees. That's 50% of humanity. But just how connected are we when it comes to our tree relatives? Trees are essential to our existence, but modern life has made things complicated. Perhaps it's time to forge a new way forward in our relationship with trees. I'm Jane Fritz, and this is People and Trees. In part one, we listen to voices of those who relate to trees on a more personal level. Here in part two, we'll be more boots on the ground to better understand forestry and how we can meet our human needs for wood while protecting the wild creatures whose only home is the forest. Jamie Pinkham was forestry manager of the Nez Perce tribe back in the early 1990s when I interviewed him about the values guiding the Namipu's forestry work. Today, he works as a top official in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers under the Biden administration. When we look at uh, you know, the land, whether it be forest land or agricultural land or rangeland, you know, the tribe has always held land as something very sacred to them. And by by having this interdisciplinary approach to, to meet the tribe's needs, we can try to guarantee as much as possible that we're meeting the cultural values, the wildlife values, and, and the forestry values. But you know, the key is, is we just can't be focusing our efforts into maximizing timber production for revenue. You know, we're pretty proud of our heritage and uh, proud of the, and, and worship the relationship that we have with the land. And we can't make that separation. They need to go hand in hand. So that's why forestry needs to be driven by cultural values, by wildlife values, water and fisheries as well. During the timber wars of the 1990s, fought between industry and environmentalists, animals like the northern spotted owl became the symbolic and literal focus because it needs old-growth forests to survive. In indigenous communities, all animals are considered to be teachers and guardian spirits worthy of protection. Indian people, uh, when they'd go out for their, their quest, they would get their strength from particular animals. Maybe one of the animals we'd get our strength from would be from the owl. When we lose that part of the environment, uh, that, that member of our community, you know, we all suffer. And how can we figure we can go on and lead a whole and full life when all the members of our community, whether it be the, the forest community or the Indian community, aren't there to share the experiences with us or to share their powers with us. And I think, you know, it was one of the early, early lessons I learned that um, we weren't here to, to conquer anything. We were here to just live in harmony and to share ourselves with one another. And that takes it right through the relationship with all the plants and animals in the forest environment. Jamie Pinkham believes that when cultural values clash, because of differing worldviews around forestry practices. Traditional values should take precedence. When we look at where tribes need to be tomorrow, and we need to be able to, to speak two languages. We need to be able to speak as a forester the scientific language of how to manage a forest. On the other hand, since we, our lands are so in tune with our traditions, I also need to speak the traditional or the cultural language and to make those two coincide. And I need the help of, of the elders to teach me those cultural values in those traditional ways so that I can help meet both the, the economic and forestry needs 
as well as the tribe's social and cultural needs. The Indian people have a reverence for the land, and how can we turn our back on uh, that reverence? How can we take something and not be able to replace it? Because we can say it's, an, it's for economic reasons, but if we lose it, there's no way to replace it. Because you know, Indian people are, are blessed with a beautiful heritage, and I can't see anything that uh, should get in the way of that, of preserving that for any reason. You know, we're beautiful people because we're Indians in the way that we, we think and our beliefs and our relationships with the land and with others. And I can't see anything that should drive us to lose that unique identity or to create that separateness from um, our culture and the non-Indian society. What I call it is taking tradition to tomorrow. We don't need to go back and, and return to living the lifestyle that Indian people have lived, you know, uh, before European settlement began. But then again, we can't lose sight of the cultural ties or the traditional ways that helped us survive through that point in time. Because I still think today, those traditional values are helping us survive today, even in face of the contemporary problems that we're, we're experiencing. Tim Doherty is a forester and resource manager for Idaho Forest Group. He's in charge of managing the company's portfolio of government timberlands in Idaho, Montana, and Washington, including tribal timber sales. I'm looking forward to learning about current forestry practices from him, using his own property in Boundary County, Idaho, as our classroom. Okay, so Tim and I are out in his woods. How many acres do you have, Tim? We have 15 acres down here, and... 14 and a half acres on the other side of the county road. And we did a harvest on this in 2005. So the little trees you see, like that ponderosa pine, that ponderosa pine, those trees down in the clearing, those were all planted since 2005. Those are naturals, those came back. But we did more or less a commercial shelter wood harvest because I tried to open it up to allow sunlight to the ground to promote uh, trees and we came through on the 30 acres we planted 3,000 trees ponderosa pine and larch because this was predominantly a Douglas fir stand and you want the ponderosa pine and the larch because a they are more resilient to uh, insects and disease, and they're also shade intolerant species, so they like the sun. Yeah, see these larch, that larch was planted. That larch was planted. That larch was planted. And it's interesting to see that one's maybe 15 feet tall. Now you go here, it's maybe 20 feet away. That one's 25 feet tall. So, so now how do you account for that? There's the variables. We opened up this area. A lot of sun got to it. There's a water source right there. There's probably pretty good dirt right there. As you saw when we walked over where we came, just came from, there's a lot of rock there. So it was fairly thick before? Oh yes, that? this was like you'd have to paw your way through. How does that affect that buried internet, that underground internet of 
communication routes and you know we did very little excavation so we didn't have any constructed trails we didn't have any constructed landing so we tried to save that network so far the trees we've seen in this forest selectively logged in 2005 are small in size but the farther we walk into the woods the larger the trees become i marvel at the size of some of them Oh, it's a beautiful dug fir. It's uh, probably 24 inches diameter uh, right here at breast height, DBH. And the form is good, and the crown is full. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful tree. Let's look at this one right here, Jane, same thing. That's just a beautiful tree. It's just gorgeous. So would these trees be considered old growth or not yet? No, no ma'am, these would not. But again, you give them 50 years, 70 years, they'll be there. As we continue down the trail to the small grove of cedar trees left growing in the shade along a seasonal creek, we come upon evidence of animal life in the forest. What is that, That's Jim? a squirrel midden. Okay, so that's where squirrels take their fir cones and they open them up and they eat the seeds. So when you're walking through the forest and you see these piles of, looks like taken apart cones, a squirrel has been there and made, I mean, it's all around this fir tree. So it needed a big tree to have the cones mm -hmm. for its food. And how old would you say this tree is? About? Probably 100 to 120 years old. It's not really considered old growth till it's what, two, three hundred years two, old? Two, three hundred, generally. And, um, and yet, it's providing um, food for um, squirrels. Mm -hmm. What other creatures might inhabit this tree? Well, you know, I often wonder that when we're logging on a job. Oh. You know, are, uh, does a tree have a bee's nest in it? Does it have a nest in it? Does it, you know, are there squirrels living somewhere in it? And uh, when I'm walking a job and there's a feller buncher, guys are cutting down trees and I see a squirrel, I'm like, you better run, little buddy. <laughs> go find your, go find your, you know, go find a house. Because it, it, there are all sorts of living things all around you. All you have to do is look. We have these areas where the deer can hide and the elk can hide. And, and in about six weeks, we'll have turkeys on the property. And we've had wolves on our property. We've had bears, we've, we've treed bears uh, that are in the compost bin. So that's, I mean, I, I really like, I, I love this piece of property because of how we haven't intensively managed it just for trees. So you were able to do that on your wood lot? Yes, ma'am. It, but that's not usually what's done on a timber sale? No. When we walk to the northern end, you'll see what really, really intensive forest management does. Unlike Doherty's well-managed forest, what we saw there was a clear-cut field of stumps ready for burning. Tree seedlings would be planted in the ash, and someday far in the future, these growing trees would be logged again. This is typical forest management practiced by Idaho's Department of Lands, which contribute to the school endowment fund. In the past, federal lands were logged this way as well, 
But litigation under environmental laws basically stopped logging in many places, including the yak. The clear-cutting, the road building, that wasn't working for some folks. It took years for the various stakeholders to work together to determine which trees would be cut and which trees would remain to sustain a long-term yield of forest products and benefits to timber communities. The National Forest Management Act provides the guiding principles. Today, forest collaboratives are how decisions are being made on millions of acres. Doherty participates in two of them. Is you really have to establish some trust. Instead of two fists pushing against each other, more like opening your hands and saying, okay, what can we agree on? If we can't meet the needs of everybody out there, then we're doing something wrong. There's a growing recognition that complex forest ecology and new science of the interconnected community of forest life, along with how forests affect climate change, should be what guides the future in forestry. Now, I, I think the biggest thing is, is carbon sequestering. What trees do in taking in carbon and releasing oxygen in, in photosynthesis. As, as an on-the-ground forester, I don't have the answer for that or know what the optimum forest is to carbon sequester. Natural solutions for climate also is about rewilding and restoring timberlands so that we have wildlife. Mm -hmm whether it's deer, elk, or squirrels, mm -hmm. um, and everything else. Well, how about monarch butterflies? Or monarch butterflies, or the pollinators, all of those things. I think as a humanity, I think that we need to realize that yes, we affect each other, and yes, we affect what's going on around us. And I think we've lost that. We don't quite understand the connectedness. Yeah. No, I, I, would, I would agree a thousand percent with that. Okay. Absolutely. The perfect storm of drought, excessive heat, and wildfire experienced during recent summers are causing concern. Will shade-tolerant trees like cedar and hemlock survive, or should they be replaced with pines and larch? And should forests be more heavily thinned? Tim Doherty believes an increase in pace and scale of such forest restoration is needed, or nature will take its course. You know, nature is going to do what nature does, and it's going to manage by fire. Let's say a lightning strike hits here, and we start a little fire right here. Well, the fire is going to get in those limbs, six foot off the ground, and it's going to ignite the crown of that tree, which is 20 feet tall, which is going to carry the fire into the crown of that big dug fir that is 100 feet tall. And that's going to go up like a match. And you fuel that with wind, and it's going to jump from that crown to that crown to those ladder fuels, and then you build up some heat. And that's how nature manages trees. Rob, look. Look at these trees. Oh my gosh, what Beautiful. are they? So that's a larch, that's a big old larch. We've got another dug fir, some grand fir in here, but yeah, look at, that's an old, old tree. Like old how many, like hundreds of years? It's hard to say because things are so diverse, soils, temperatures, exposures, whether it's north or south facing slope, 
But I, I would bet a tree like that is a couple hundred years ago. I, I would bet it was here before white colonialists came. Yeah, this is amazing. Rob Clavins is the Northeast Coordinator for Oregon Wild, a conservation group that works to protect wild forest lands of the state as an enduring legacy for future generations. Rob and I are walking along Hurricane Creek into the Eagle Cap wilderness of the Wallawa Mountains. It's a rugged mountain forest that has known and recovered from wildfire. And but but particularly the reason it caught my eye is mm. because it's black at yeah. the bottom. Tell me about that. Yeah, so this is part of one of those fires we had a, two years in a row, about five years ago, we had some fires come through here. And yeah, the, the base of this tree is just charred, but you look at the top and it's, it's alive and well, and they have this, these fire adaptations to survive fire. Thick bark, uh, the trees often self-prune where a lot of the, the limbs lower down are, are, have died and fallen off. And the, most of the green needles are, are high up where they can get the sun and then also aren't allowing the, the fire to, to race up. Uh, and also with frequent fire, you often see the, the duff layer gets burned away, uh, which is really important because otherwise if that fire happens low on the ground right around the base of the tree, it can, even if it's not an intense fire, can just cook the tree and kill it that way. Coming up below it, we just saw that um, mountain ash and also a, a real diversity of species, more maples, berries. Yeah, it's a very, very cool tree. Definitely a survivor. And it's probably survived many fires before this one. And there are several around it too, uh, larch and, and is that a dug fir or a grand fir, that one that behind like, it? That looks like a dug fir to me. Have to go up close to, to check. I always cheat with dug fir by looking for cones underneath. This uh, fire has thinned the forest around them in such a way that when the next fire comes, they're much more likely to survive again. It's also a very tall tree, but in Oregon, people are used to trees 150 feet tall. In Idaho, they all look miniature. <laughs> Even these are nothing compared to some of those big trees, you know, in the, in the Cascades and in the Redwoods. But they used to be a lot more common. In particular, when we started protecting forests in Western Oregon, industry had to look elsewhere. And they started coming to Eastern Oregon and, and high-graded a lot of these forests. So... Um, what does that mean, high grade? Yeah, high grading just means taking the biggest and the best um, and the straightest. And so it's it's taking the, the trees that are the most valuable from an economic perspective. And unfortunately, also often from an ecological perspective. And so we just don't have a whole lot of that left. So where we do have forests that are, are still something like what they were, I think they're really worth thinking long and hard about uh, how we can protect them. And if we are going to actively manage them, how we make sure we do it in a way that is not repeating the mistakes of the past. Places like this just are special. Um, you know, we can talk about them in their economic value as logs. We could talk about their economic value in recreation. Um, we could talk about their the science of ecologically how important they are. Or we could just stand in awe and recognize that this is really special and, and just knowing these places are out there is, is wonderful. And to be in a place like this, to have that opportunity is something I, I hope we can pass on to, to future generations. I'm drawn uh, to the forest. I feel their energy and mm. they're like, you know, all the Indians call them standing people, the harmony and the beauty. But just then you were saying they're special. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It's hard to articulate. And I think sometimes the most important things are hard to articulate, but 
on a personal level, the sense of discovery to, to see these places and to have the opportunity to see it for the first time yourself. I think spending time in nature, especially quiet places, you start to see things that were there in front of you the whole time. Animals come out, birds come out, and it's at their own pace. You don't get to choose when you see it, like I'm gonna turn on the TV and see this program. You know, it's, it's what animal wants to show itself to you, what tree is going to be in what state at, at what time. And I think one of the really amazing things, especially in the Western United States, is that these are public lands. They belong to all of us. And that's an important thing to remember that just in the same way that if the citizens of New York wanted to melt down the Statue of Liberty, I have something to say about that. Similarly, we all have a say in, in, in what these forests mean to us. And I think sometimes people laugh off the spiritual values or, or those sorts of things as inconsequential. But I can't think of anything more consequential. And speaking personally, these are the places that make me feel alive. That, that you know, this, this summer we were just talking about has been disorienting. I haven't wanted to be outside because it's, you know, 100 degrees outside and uh, the air is just full of smoke. And coming out even today just for a couple hours is, is just restorative. Um, it's something that really is, I think, in your heart and your soul. As a wildlife defender on public lands, Clavins believes we need a new vision for how the forest is managed in consideration of non-human species. You know, a lot of my day-to-day -day job is talking about timber sales and negotiating with, with people who um, have very different ideas about what forests are for and what they should be. And when we talk about forests as board feet and fuels, we just miss so much. Um, and it's also such a human-centric view. Um, there are so many other living things that deserve our consideration. There are places where we should prioritize their needs and have the humility to understand that living and non-living parts of the system have been working it out for a really long time before we started tinkering. Sometimes the forest collaborative process fails, like in another area of the Eagle Cap, the wild Lostine River Canyon, where forest thinning took place. You know, environmentalists get a bad rap for taking agencies to court uh, as though we're against everything. Um, we only go to court when agencies break the law. And one example of that was we stood in a stand where there were these large, old, fire-resistant trees, and they wanted to aggressively thin it, and they did. Immediately adjacent to that was a stand of small trees that were ladder fuels, that were, were exactly what if you want to actually reduce fuels to adjust fire behavior, you would do the work there. They thinned where the big volume was. They cut many, many trees much larger than they were supposed to. In a wild and scenic river corridor that's home to endangered fish, plants, wildlife, including Oregon's only known wolverine, there are places where natural processes should take place. And so if you're talking about thinning near homes, uh, if you're talking about uh, creating defensible space around structures and human life and infrastructure, that makes sense. Just because you say thinning, not all thinning is created equal. Uh, some is good and some is not. If global warming is the biggest challenge facing the planet, protecting old growth and the largest trees on the landscape is one of the best solutions, Rob Clavin says. Let the giants continue to grow. Here in Oregon, logging is the number one contributor to climate change when you include the whole cycle of, of logging. And you're looking at these trees, they burned 
but the vast majority of the carbon, the biomass is still on site. And when those trees slowly decay, much of that carbon will be reincorporated into the system. Uh, a great deal of it, uh, even the stuff that gets released over the years, it will happen over decades, if not centuries. Um, and all the time providing habitat and food for, for wildlife and for the system. This is a fire adapted system and we can't just deal with the symptoms of climate change. We also have to take responsibility for solving the problem. There are very few things we can do that are better than protecting the largest trees on the landscape. But science has shown not just old trees, the biggest 3% of trees in Eastern Oregon sequester 42% of the carbon. These large trees are pulling out carbon much, much faster than the small trees, regardless of their age, regardless of their species. So there's this idea of reforestation, planting trees, and planting trees is wonderful, but we're at a time where we don't have time to waste. You're not gonna replace that opportunity for another 50, 100, 200, 300 years until those little trees that we just planted are, are, back, are coming to that size. But what we really need to focus on is pro-forestation, protect the big carbon-sucking trees right now that are out there so that they can continue to do their job in these critical few years while we're trying to address all of the other issues that are contributing to climate change. So many people talk about natural resources, and I've heard other folks say we really need to be talking about natural relations. And as soon as you do that, it shifts the way you think about it. We have been taking and taking and taking, and I think now it's time to start investing in those relationships. You know, all of these natural processes that we're so afraid of, bugs and fire and disease, are really important parts of a forest's life. Uh, a healthy forest is not just made up of straight, growing, evenly spaced, healthy trees. A healthy, vibrant forest includes dead, dying trees standing, rotting into the ground. Those dead trees that are still standing, known as snags, are often cut down for firewood or feared to be hazardous to human activities like recreation. But many are critical to the survival of dozens of wildlife species, especially those facing increasing habitat loss. There's a tremendous lack of snags in the landscape, which, um, you know, they're, they're used by everything from hibernating bears and owls to bats, uh, to fungus, to, to insects. Um, and and the, there are a lot of species that without snags, they can't survive. Rightly, the, the, the Forest Service and the agencies and, and, and lots of the public too, rightly, um, really focus on endangered species. But we have to protect these systems too, and that includes protecting common species. And you know, what looks to a firefighter like ladder fuel looks like home to a flying squirrel. And if you're an endangered goshawk, you really hope there's plenty of flying squirrels around for you to eat. And so we have to remember that, that these systems, not just the in specific parts, are, are also really important. So where do we go from here in this very complex and complicated story between humans and nature. When looking for wisdom, I often turn to the traditional stories of the indigenous peoples who lived and managed these landscapes, including with fire, for thousands of years before we arrived. The late Clifford Allen told me this Nez Perce legend while walking a forested trail in Yellowstone. I think it's about change and restoration. Many years ago, centuries and centuries ago, maybe as far back as 10, 15,000 years ago, our people 
they spoke to the animals, the birds and the bees. They held counsel. They all spoke. The elk, the deer, they all got up to speak. The bee, even, it spoke. We all listened to each other. Years, centuries went by after the first council. Then they seen smoke. Last night there was thunder. They could smell smoke. Our people wondered what happened. Then we realized the Creator sent thunder to build a fire. We sent our warriors out after the fire had died down and nothing but blackness remained in the mountain. Our warriors went out to sea. One of our warriors smelled something. As he sat there getting the scent, the scent made his stomach rumble. Why, he asked himself, what is it? What is that scent that makes my stomach rumble like this? He followed the scent. He found it. My brother, my brother, one of the deer got caught in a fire and he burnt to death and the scent come from the deer. He cut off the hide, the hair burn on it, and he sniffed at the hide. No, it's not this. He tasted it. It didn't taste very good. He looked at the meat and then he sniffed at it. This is it. He cut off a piece of the meat and he tasted it. The craving was so strong, he cut off another piece and he kept eating and he kept eating. The stomach stopped rumbling and he knew it was a sign, it was a gift from the Creator that he must eat his brother. He took off a large chunk of the meat and brought it home to the council members. The council members, after they got scent of it, their stomach started to rumble also. The only cure that they had for it was the burnt meat. Since that time, our people, the Indian, so-called, ate meat. The animals objected. Why do you eat us, they said at council. And now you've got a whole new habit. You're taking our feathers too, said the eagle. Why do you do this to us? You never did this before. The deer and the elk objected. Don't eat us anymore. If you continue to eat us, we will no longer speak to you. We will no longer talk to any one of you. Maybe we will speak to a spirited few of you, but not to all of you. The council was over. The Indians continued to eat the deer over the objections. It has been thousands of years since all animals spoke to each other. Today, we know the legend is true in our people. The only problem that we have had, the location has never been found where all animals, all our people sat in peace. It's just the place. People in Trees was produced for Spokane Public Radio by the Idaho Mythweaver as part of its Voices of the Wild Earth radio and podcast series. If you missed part one, it is available as a podcast at spokanepublicradio.org. This program is supported in part by a grant from the Idaho Humanities Council, a state-based program of the National Endowment for the Humanities, with additional funding from Idaho Forest Group. Special thanks to Jeanette Wiaskas and Rich Wanschneider for their editorial guidance. Production assistance, engineering, and original music by Justin Lantrip. I'm producer Jane Fritz.